The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. You know what's interesting about this? Was being born. By the way, it's the Check My Brain podcast. Tony Mazur here. The national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller. I'm actually talking about an era before this. Here on this podcast today. From Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie. Mickey and the Duke. Talking about an era that's almost predates this, the subjects of this song almost a century. So this was my opportunity to talk to Thomas W. Gilbert. He is the author of the book How Baseball Happened, and we get into talking a little bit about the beginnings of baseball. What started it? How did it become what it is today? And how different is it from where it was in like 19? 19- or 1845. So I get into talking to that with Thomas W. Gilbert. So check out his book, How Baseball Happened. You'll find out some things that uh, you may have thought about the early stages of baseball. You may not have known. They may have been debunked. You thought Abner Doubleday started baseball, huh? Might be surprised to know who started it. So that's my conversation with Thomas W. Gilbert. So check that out. Thanks for thanks for listening. Leave a review. Let me know what you think. For you baseball fans. If you're not a baseball fan, I don't know, maybe check out next next week's podcast. I don't know what to tell you. It's Tony Mazer here. I am uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're gonna talk about how baseball happened. Yes, that's the name of the book, is How Baseball Happened. It's by Thomas W. Gilbert, and I'm joined by Tom here uh, via Zoom doing this. Tom, thanks so much for uh, being a part of this. And, uh, Great how, to be with you. How Baseball Happened. And that's kind of a weird open-ended question for a lot of people because you say, you know, when you're growing up, because you think about it from where baseball began to where it is now, and we're recording this during the World Series, it's happening. It's not too different. It's just subtle nuances have changed throughout the game, but ultimately what they are playing between the Rays and the Dodgers is really not too different from what it was over 150 years ago. And I guess get into baseball, the beginnings of it, was this a derivative of of cricket? Was this – because they were saying that there's a possibility that there were – because in reading some of the uh, parts of your book, that going back until like the 1780s, they were playing some form of what we know now know as baseball. That's true. And, um, you know, what happens is when you trace the beginnings of baseball back, and most fans' memories kind of run out of steam around the dead ball era, maybe, or even later. But baseball, of course, is much older than that. The, the, major, the professional baseball started in 1871. And as you were saying even before that when baseball was amateur and the players were ordinary people a lot of them were great athletes it was very competitive there were fans there were tickets if we got into a time machine and went to a game in the late 1860s it would be very recognizable as a modern sport and the same as the sport we play now the biggest difference being that they were pitching underhand and nobody had any gloves or equipment did they care about launch angles in those days (laughs) 
That's a great question because, <laughs> you know, I think some people did. And uh, one of the famous early clubs was a New York team called the Knickerbockers, and they were the best team in baseball uh, in the 18, late 1840s into the 1850s. And there's a, you know, there's a funny interaction between baseball and cricket in the early days because cricket was established in America. People find this hard to believe. But it was really based in the immigrant communities of people from Great Britain. It never, it tried to sell itself to Americans. It didn't quite happen. And that's part of the story I tell in my book. But the Knickerbockers, the sporting press was full of Englishmen. And if you know anything about cricket, the whole idea of like trying to crank one and hit it over, yeah. hit it over the wall is not cricket. And when Americans play cricket, they tend to uh, do what we do in baseball and try and hit the ball really far in the air. So there's a story from 1856 that I ran across, and it, I find it fascinating, where the journalist, who's anonymous, but I suspect is coming from a cricket background, he scolds the Knickerbockers for a launch angle. He says, they hit too many balls in the air. Why are they trying to hit the ball so hard in the air? <laughs> and I think the answer is uh, the same reason people do it today. Is it just uh, pure American bravado? Well, it also works in baseball. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a little even though there's finesse now to it, but uh, yeah, that's kind of that uh, uh, going back there. You were mentioning with the Knickerbockers, but because I, I was reading somewhere about how it was Pittsfield, Massachusetts, it was 1786 that there was the there was what was known as I think they called it based ball, B A S T E ball, and that that was possibly the earliest incarnation of what we know as the the word associated with the term baseball. Yeah, that that's there's there's things like that, and sometimes it's spelled B A S S, and there's also games that might be baseball that are called something else like town ball, and there's also games called baseball that we suspect are not baseball, but they use the same name. The problem is somewhere around the early 1840s before that uh, you're kind of in the fog historically because there's all kinds of reasons that w that we I can convince you that baseball was played but exactly what it was who was doing it it's hard to say and the reason how far back it goes um, one thing we do know is that uh, because it really it really wasn't covered in the paper that's the main problem so baseball started being taken seriously by society as a whole in the late 1840s into the 1850s in the New York area. That's part of, that's where the story sort of begins. Before that, you know, it's a game. We, we have games that don't appear in the newspaper and future historians will probably wonder what they were. Um, it's really, uh, baseball takes off when it's taken seriously by important people. And that's a big part of how baseball happened. Because at that time, it, baseball was kind of a thing that uh, – now, was it – did I see that it was banned in – like during Civil War that they were having like a little bit of downtime and that they would play something like that? Did I see in some battlefields that it was kind of banned in some cases? I don't know about that, but there's the, – the Civil War is a whole chapter in my book, and you know, it's a actually big historical controversy of exactly how the Civil War affected the development of baseball because – the issue is basically this. So in the mid 1850s, a bunch of people in New York and Brooklyn, for reasons that are discussed at length in my book, decide we need an, our own national sport. Now that sounds very strange because we have lots of national sports now, but there was a time when we had zero. There was no sports scene. There was no, the sports were basically about gambling. Uh, we had boxing and horse racing, things like that. But the idea of team sports as we know it now, didn't even exist in the middle 1850s. 
And there's literally no sports fans, no sports sections, nothing like that. No ballparks, no championships. So a bunch of people decided we needed one. And the reasons are kind of interesting. And I go into them in my book. Um, okay, so mid-1850s, this whole idea launches of we need a national sport. And the first question is, is it going to be cricket? <laughs> <laughs> because that's already a developed sport, except in every other British colony pretty much picked up an English sport, most of them cricket. Right. They play it in Jamaica and India and Pakistan and um, South, South Africa. But for America is different. And we decided we are not playing an English sport. And there's a lot about that in my book. Why? These are all the big questions in baseball that people don't know the answers to. OK, so 1855, roughly uh, things get going. Well, by 1870, baseball is played everywhere in America. They're selling tickets. There's famous teams. There's baseball cards. There's players. There's sports sections. Fifteen years, it goes from zero to what it is, almost what it is now. In the middle of that period, they take four and a half years out to fight the Civil War. So it happened really, really quickly. So basically, it goes from – it's basically kind of what you see in a lot of ways of small businesses get propped up nowadays where you have a big donor who invests in something, and you saw that when – uh, I'm, I'm looking here a couple of guys like uh, William Hulbert uh, was kind of one of the key guys. Uh, just uh, just I was kind of skimming through your book with that and uh, some of the first stars and everything. But you really needed something to take off. Like there have been so many sports where, like I, I look at the UFC now, and the UFC has been around for what about 25 plus years, and. It kind of it took a long time where it was kind of a it was a real niche sport to the point where now in 2020 you have people who are going out and well when bars were open and places where you were able to do things that you would fill up places because you would watch UFC fights. It was pretty organic how that kind of took off, but it took people like Dana White and somebody to really invest heavily and get that attention into it, and it kind of is like that, you know, going back 150 years with baseball, that it really needed somebody to kind of kick it in the ass and get it to that point where it's going to be of some kind of national prominence to, to where it became a pastime. Well, that's true. And, you know, there's a couple of interesting things about that. That's a good point you're making. Um, one is that the people who really pushed the movement initially, they never dreamed it was going to be a business or a form of entertainment. I mean, that's the first thing you have to understand about yeah. them is that they were only interested in getting people to exercise and play. And a funny thing happens in the late 1850s, which is that, okay, the game crosses the river to Brooklyn from New York. That's the first place it goes. And people in Brooklyn, which is an independent city, uh, they have a sense of rivalry with New York. They still do. And they decide they're going to beat them at baseball. I mean, this was not the original idea, right? So... <laughs> A rivalry springs up, and we know rivalries are great for sports, and they, they create public interest. Um, so in 1858, Brooklyn challenged New York to a best two out of three all-star series, and nothing like this had ever happened. Um, and they were going to have it in uh, an open field in New Jersey, and they suddenly started to realize, wait a minute, um, there's an incredible buzz about this game as it's approaching. And they started to worry about how many people would show up. And at that time, nobody really watched baseball. So they moved it to a horse racing track in Queens because it had a grandstand and bathrooms and stuff. And then they charged, this is a total accident, they charged 10 cents because they were going to tear up the grass in the horse racing track. So it was a groundskeeping fee. And this is kind of amusing from a modern point of view because still people have not 
gotten the a clue that baseball is going to attract public interest and you can make money off of it. Well, uh, eight or 10,000 people show up, which shocks the entire baseball world and everybody. Uh, and even though baseball kept focusing on the game, the people running baseball focused on selling it as a participant sport, uh, entrepreneurs noticed. And in 1862, a guy who had nothing to do with baseball, he was a leather manufacturer. He built a ballpark, the first one, with a fence and stands and food. And he um, charged fans to come into it. And he let the amateur baseball teams play there for free. And this is actually the beginning of baseball as a business, because uh, you can imagine if you were one of those players saying, great, I got a beautiful field and it's free. And about three months later, you're saying somebody's making a buck off this and it's not me. Yeah, it's kind of that's what's interesting, because like that with uh, stand up comedy that I know in um, Mitzi Shore with the comedy store out in L.A. for a long time in the 70s, when that started all the way up until there was a strike at the end of 79, 80, that the the people there, the, you know, she was making money. The bartenders were making money. The servers were making money. Everyone was making money but the comics. And because she said, well, it's the place for the comics to grow. It's kind of like a college for them. And when you go back into these days where the players, this was just a way to get exercise. Well, with any business, you start to have a little bit of that revolt. And you started wanting, like, wait a second, I, you know, you, they're getting hurt. They're probably pulling hamstrings or doing whatever in those days. And they're like, I, I'm starting to risk parts of my body for this. This isn't just exercise. This is a business. And when you start looking around and everyone's making money, that's where you started getting into the conversation of guys wanting to get paid and that there were certain, you know, was it, would you say it was Cincinnati, the, the red leggings were the first ones that were the, the first group who was starting to kind of recruit players and, and starting to get them paid? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another a whole chapter of my book. It's the last chapter because the Cincinnati Red Stockings, they've, what they're known in history for um, is the first professional team. That's what they're called. And uh, baseball, professional baseball, uh, sees itself as descended from the 69 Red Stockings. They even had a patch on the uniforms last year, if you can remember back that far in 2019. Oh, yes, <laughs> and, I remember that year. So that was the 150th anniversary of 1869 Red Stockings. That was the team. Most fans have heard of them because they, they went undefeated for an entire season. Um, they were this awesome all-star team. 57 and that was Yes. In fact, they went 84 and 0, but oh, in they 69, did. they started winning in late 68 and they didn't lose till June of 1870. Goodness gracious. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. They're the Harlem Globetrotters of their time. They were. And, um, you know, actually, if you look at how the team was built and who did it and why, it's a whole fascinating story. The thing is, they're not the first professional team. It's a little more interesting than that, um, even though that's what they're remembered for. Um, amateur teams in the late 1860s were getting paid. But there was sort of a, uh, you know, uh, amateurism is always complicated, even today. And, and I get into discussions with this with people who say, well, historians are always saying, well, the Atlantics, Brooklyn Atlantics in 1868 and 9, they were paying their players. So they're hypocrites, right? Because they're saying that they're amateur. But what they did was they gave them a piece of the gate. They were a little bit, they were a little bit like modern Olympic athletes. They got, mm -hmm. they were too busy working on baseball, which is taken way too seriously for them to have jobs. So they were supported by their fellow club members and by um, money from selling tickets. And, um, the difference in, in 1870, this Atlantic's team, which was a great dynasty from the amateur era, 
it defeated the Red Stockings in June 14th of 1870, and they ended the famous streak. It was a huge game. Wow. And um, it was a, they were underdogs. Uh, they won an in extra innings. It's a fantastic story. Um, so after the victory, the Brooklyn newspaper, the Daily Eagle, they ran an editorial kind of crowing about this. And they, they put it very clearly in black and white what the difference was between a regular amateur team that paid its players and the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And what they say is, hey, our team, we get paid, but they're all Brooklyn boys who live here and grew up here and played on our youth teams. That Cincinnati team, they're just mercenaries. Every single one of them, except the first baseman, came from somewhere else. None of them are from Cincinnati. So what you're really seeing here is the beginning of the modern idea that a baseball player is a commodity. He's a hired gun. That's yeah. the thing that was different about the Red Stockings. The the ringer, kind of like when you're playing a, a like even even that kind of happens into this day where like you have a beer league softball team and you say, okay, well we just have a bunch of guys who are just gonna drink on the bench and everything and it's like yeah but this guy can really bop them uh, hey let's uh let's send a message out there hey can you play on a thursday night we got two games starting at 8 30 yeah i could do that and then they come there it's it's kind of that's exactly exactly what used to happen so in those days where before i mean if you think about it when paying players and their salaries where you were getting to a point where in all the way probably up until the 60s the 1960s and 1970s is that guys were actually have still supplementing their incomes they were still weren't making that kind of money like it was their main job but they would have to do something in the off season they go to autograph signings and they would travel and do a bunch of caravans and everything throughout the uh, country barnstorming and everything but in those days it was the opposite so they were they were getting a little bit of that stipend from the gate but what were these guys, especially in Brooklyn, because you, you, from what you contend or is what I've seen some contend is that Brooklyn may as well be the birthplace of baseball. And what were these guys really doing? Like if all the games were played during the daytime, how were they able to you know, come home to their wives and their families? And what were they doing? Like did they have to split their day? Like were they on a farm? Were they working in a in a mill or something? They'd have to split their day and say, hey, I'll be right back. I'll be back in a couple hours. I've got a game. And then they got to come back to the mill. Or how? Like what was the uh, life like, the day in the life of one of these players back in, you know, from the 1840s through the 1870s? Yeah, well, great question. Um, it changes. So the short answer. So in the beginning of amateur baseball, these are regular people. But they're not um, – Baseball, I mean, America was different in the 1840s. So if you, we went there in a time machine, uh, one of the things we'd notice is uh, if you're like a laborer, a working man, if you're a, in, in living in the country, uh, you're working way too hard to even think about playing a game. So that's, you know, 80% of America or 90% has, is automatically not going to have anything to do with the sport. I mean, life was hard. And the only people that had any leisure or money were sort of the upwardly mobile, successful, what we would call sort of upper middle class people in the city. Those are the people that really got baseball going. That was the bourgeoisie yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, the emerging urban bourgeoisie is the term I use. That's kind of an <laughs> ugly phrase. But the reason is I'm trying not to call them middle class because that's sort of misleading. But, you know, I talk a lot about them as a group. And, you know, look, we, we're much more comfortable than Americans were then. And we take for granted that we have leisure and entertainment and time for sports. Um, this was sort of a f dream come true for the people that founded baseball. That's what they wanted. But they marketed the sport by selling it to this very narrow group of people 
who lived mostly in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston in the beginning. And a lot of them are sort of financial district types, professionals, people like that. And those people are in charge of their own schedule. And uh, if you worked in the financial district, you know the term banker's hours. That was basically the mark of a white-collar worker in those days. If you were a clerk or a, a treasurer of a bank or um, a lawyer or a doctor, um, you, uh, you, you were pretty much done at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. So, you know, I don't know how they convinced us to work 40 hours, but those guys, um, they would, uh, you know, the Negro Knickerbockers talked about how if it was a nice day, uh, they would send someone around to Canvas and say, who wants to play? And then they would get out, walk out the door at 2.30 or 3, get on a ferry 15 minutes to New Jersey where there was open space and play baseball. It was a pickup game, more or less. Now, the answer to your question later on, because things changed quickly in that 15-year period, in the late 1860s, you guys are playing baseball full time. And uh, as I said, by the definition of amateurism of the time, they weren't violating it. But, you know, the whole problem is that, you know, the, and the main argument for Brooklyn as the birthplace of baseball is that the first fans happened there. You know, that's a huge, that changes everything. You know, we, we weren't invited to the party when we crashed it. Nobody invited fans to watch baseball. As soon as fans are interested and as soon as they're spending money and buying newspapers, the stakes go up. It really matters who wins or loses and everything changes. You know, this is a part of the story I tell in my book. There are moments when you can see something which to us is so taken for granted, right? That fans care who wins, even though they don't have a money interest. And they're booing the umpire and they're cheering for their guys. Um, but in those days, when it first happened, it was a shock to people. They didn't understand it. Yeah, that was, uh, when you think about in those days where you kind of, like you mentioned about the the banker's hours and it just becomes pickup, is that it wasn't until 18, what I read, 1857, where they started kind of shaping what we know as baseball as far as the rules, where you get nine guys playing on a team, you get uh, the 90 feet between the base paths, you're going to play nine innings. It, I think I read somewhere that they said it was the first to twenty-one was the winner. Yeah, that's like that was the original rule. <laughs> like the first, imagine the first to twenty-one nowadays. I mean, these games will last <laughs> six hours. Yeah, I think the Dodgers might get there once or twice a week, but the, <laughs> no, the you know that tells you how high-scoring baseball was. Uh, that was the problem. They had to change the rule because defenses were getting better and pitching was getting better. And what about the equipment too? Well. There was virtually no equipment in the amateur era. Just underhand, and were they? Was that when they were still kind of like pegging guys with the ball, as opposed to what it, what we know now is throwing guys yeah, out so at a base or tagging them? One of the best part they didn't do that, but one of the best parts of um, that was actually eliminated by when baseball started to get it together. The first thing they did was eliminate throwing at the runner. <laughs> but um, you know, one of the most interesting parts of my book is the birth of modern pitching, which happened in Brooklyn in the late 1850s. And uh, there was one guy that figured out how to throw the ball and it. We don't know what he was doing exactly. He was pitching underhand, but the descriptions of him sound, his name was Jim Creighton. And the picture, the descriptions of him sound like he was doing something an awful lot like a modern pitcher. He probably, I would guess, looked like a fast pitch softball pitcher because he looked, it sounded like he was throwing breaking stuff, but he was definitely throwing much harder than anyone had ever thrown. Um, and, you know, think about the poor catcher <laughs> who's barehanded. 
I'm, I'm still in awe of the amateur era catcher because there are pictures of him holding up his hands in front of his face, trying to catch a foul tip with no mask, no chest protector, no gloves. <clears throat> Those guys were often carted off the field. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, well, and then well, actually, that's an interesting segue because what about the medical care? I mean, you know, nowadays these guys end up, uh, you know, they hurt hurt themselves on the field. They get taken care of, whether it's a stretcher, they get taken off the field, they get X-rays, they get all that. I mean, was this just was this just out of pocket, or were there any like pro bono doctors who were fans? Like you said, that these guys were. And that there were a lot of doctors and more of the upper middle class to upper class uh, people in New York that would leave work, they would leave their office, close up shop and watch this game. That were there a couple like the old, uh, is there a doctor in the house? And would there be like, oh, no, I'm a fan of this team. Uh, this catcher, he had a pretty good game. He went two for three today. Let me go help him out. Oh, I see that's a bruise. You got to do this. Was there any type of medical it was pretty, anything? Uh, not insurance? really, not really. It was pretty <laughs> primitive. And, um, you know, it's interesting question also when you we were talking about the cincinnati red stockings who had this 84 game winning streak over three years well not only was everybody expected to play every day in those days every inning the the cincinnati red stockings had one man on the bench um <clears throat> the backup pitcher oh, a pitcher would pitch about 90 to 95 percent of your innings and the backup pitcher was usually the second baseman or an outfielder, and he would come in if something happened to the pitcher or he needed to mop up. He was called a change pitcher. But the Cincinnati Red Stockings played the same lineup all and, and, and traveled 12,000 miles. They had a grueling schedule. Um, and it's really, really hard to believe. And um, this is the main reason that Harry Wright, who was the architect of the team, he hired young people. That was basically his medical program. The famous Cincinnati Red Stockings, one of the things that nobody remembers about them is uh, they were designed by, managed, sort of managed by uh, Harry Wright, who also played center field and did a little pitching. Um, he was 34, I believe. He was the oldest man on the team. But with the exception of their pitcher, who was 27, everybody was around 20. They had a 19-year-old, a 21-year-old. And the main reason was no trainer, <laughs> no, not too many off days, uh, no pharmaceuticals, no Tommy John. I mean, you needed heroic amounts of stamina to play baseball like that. And he went with youth, and that was a big reason why the team was so good. Yeah, so you're not getting some of these old 40-year-old uh, long-in-the-tooth guys that will <laughs> take a little longer to recover if possible. It happened, but they weren't going to be able to play uh, you know, 84 games in a row. So, so then you, so you talk about some of the things in the book about the growth of baseball and the different leagues. So, you know, you, you hear about the senior circuit in the National League. Eventually, by about 1900, you have the American League. But there were several leagues around that time, like as, as the growth of baseball from the amateur era into what, what ended up becoming the professional era, the professionalism, that it was one of those cases of, that there were just so many leagues and teams that have just came and went and just went by the wayside. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, one of the the big stories of the late amateur period is, of course, baseball is determined to become a national sport. So it has to spread everywhere. And, you know, it this was an agenda. They're pushing hard. So, um, 
you know, first it, it was located in New York and Brooklyn, and then it spread around the Northeast and to the Middle Atlantic. And the way it spread was that teams, some of the best teams would take tours. The Excelsiors made a famous tour in 1860, and they were basically selling the game. They went up to upstate New York. They went down to Philadelphia and Baltimore. Um, there was a great team in Washington called the Nationals, believe it or not, and they went to the Midwest. And what would happen is uh, there's an early team in Cleveland called the Forest Cities. And what would happen is that, uh, you know, it was like a traveling, barnstorming roadshow. This great team from the East would come and you'd put your best local boys up against them and they get thrashed. And uh, everyone paid 25 cents to see this, but it promoted the game. And the Red Stockings tours, they were the first team to go to the West Coast, the Deep South, all in the same season. They promoted the game like crazy. So, you know, the it's partly a story of a thing that was originally a New York thing becoming a national thing. So, so and, and then you talk well because, uh, and we'll talk a little more about the leagues. But like when you said about that growth of New York, that you said that in the book that it really kind of baseball kind of shaped what New York became is that it was kind of all in almost hand-in-hand hand with what uh, the growth of New York and the growth of baseball went from there. So it seemed like it was a very East Coast sport. But then where were other markets, too, where what we know today, like, for example, Cincinnati is still a predominantly baseball market. St. Louis is a baseball market. But then there are other towns and teams where it's not a hockey market, it's not a football market, it's not a baseball market. And where were some of the... Uh, cities that kind of where people really took to baseball and why it's still there to this day and then other cities where they tried and failed tried and failed and they just said forget it baseball's just not working here yeah well that's um a really interesting question and the you know this the the basic uh fact is that baseball wanted to be national and it didn't succeed in every place equally you know the the big problem in the late 1860s was after the civil war what about the south that's a big issue yep. for baseball. So the people in the South, there were some places where they played baseball uh, and, and a lot of places where they didn't, but they sort of saw baseball as associated with the union. It was sort of a Yankee thing that they didn't want to be part of. And this actually plays into the issue of uh, the color line because a lot of the Northern baseball players were abolitionists and they, some of them were civil war veterans, but, uh, they felt like if they admitted uh, African-American players in clubs, it would help. It would hurt the marketing effort in the South. But, you know, the real answer to your question is that when baseball becomes professional and then there's this long period in the 19th century that no one remembers where it's sort of chaotic and there's lots of independent leagues, minor and major. But eventually what we now call the organized baseball monopoly gets a grip on the whole professional sport and things that are monopolies. <clears throat> they kind of behave the same way, no matter what the business is. They sort of restrict, uh, they control markets and they restrict expansion. Well, when you think about it, even into, I don't know how old you are, but in my lifetime, baseball, well, a few years before my birth, baseball was only in the northeastern quarter of the country. It basically refused to expand to the West until, of course, 1957. It didn't really expand to the South. You know, the first I mentioned this in my book, the first major league team in the former Confederacy. Do you know what it is? I do not know. It's the Houston Astros. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So baseball didn't expand very quickly. And you know what? When you leave sporting markets unexploited, well, something's going to step into the void. College football, right? 
That's kind of what happened, especially in the Florida area, is that baseball, no no matter what, even if the Tampa Bay Rays have made two World Series, that stadium, for the most part, you know, pre-COVID was still empty. And it just, baseball just doesn't seem to work there. Football does. And that's kind of where you mentioned that about the expansion of baseball. Yeah, it wasn't until the 50s where Milwaukee was considered going westward. And, exactly. and and then of course heading out towards uh, Los Angeles, but I mean, yeah, there were there were minor league teams in L.A. and there were teams in the, the Seattle Tacoma area and everything. But yeah, it really was in East. I mean, for about a, almost a hundred years, baseball was an East Coast sport. That's true. I mean, East, Upper Midwest, Middle Atlantic, but not too much beyond that. So then, in, so that expansion you have, where where something like Cincinnati, uh, were there uh, other? Because you know, just like with everything in life, you have imitators, and Cincinnati is the first big time. Like even if the Knickerbockers are considered the first team in a way, the first super team, and putting it together, what we now know is kind of like a, a major league baseball team was the Cincinnati Red Stockings. Who would be? Who would you say were the first imitators of what the what the Red Stockings were doing, or did that take a little bit for others to kind of jump on board with that concept? Well, that's another good question. You know, what the Red Stockings did was they showed that organizing a team in this more modern way, where you're going to have um, management and stockholders, and you're going to hire players the way you'd hire employees for any business, um, this really worked, and. The tours were unbelievably successful. You know, the the undefeated streak just popularized baseball like crazy, and it was a national sensation. Well, that had some interesting ramifications. They were so influential. Um, One of them is they invented the uniform that we still wear. Harry Wright invented the idea that the pants stop at your knee and you wear colorful socks. (laughs) And that was a trademark. The red stockings were their trademark. And, you know, there's an incredible number of modern and other professional teams that are named after the color of their socks because of the red stockings. People think the Cardinals are named after a bird and the Royals are named after, you know, royalty, but they're not, they're named after colors. Interesting. It's not, it's not just the white socks and the red socks. Um, the other thing was that, you know, these tours I was talking about, which were unorganized barnstorming tours, the red stockings would make their own schedule and say, you know, we're going to California we're going to play whoever's there or we're going to new Orleans. Well, that's really what a modern major league season is, is kind of a rationalization of that concept, right? It's a series of road trips. It doesn't have to be organized that way, but it is because of these tours, which left such a huge imprint on people. And it's also the reason that every baseball game has a home and a visitor's side, even when they're both home (laughs) or they're both, I mean, uh, my son played in little league and everybody was home, but one team was home. One team was visitors. They would go to a tournament on a traveling team. Everybody was away, but there was one team called home, one team called visitors. It really, that's a little bit of ancient baseball history in there that we never think about. Yeah, that's, uh, so then after that, I mean, it kind of really takes off and the professionalism that was happening, and then you have the leagues that start. But I guess when you, when you start to look back after the fact that they started looking at who the the father, the grandfather of the sport was, and Abner Doubleday was kind of pegged as, oh, this is the guy who invented baseball, even though in his time it was never known as the guy who invented baseball. Though if you read into who Abner Doubleday was, he was kind of a renaissance man for his time. 
it, during the Civil War and afterward with patenting cable cars in San Francisco and everything. But he's kind of known in a lot of circles, I guess, by the average baseball fan as the godfather of baseball. But it's kind of a, a debunked myth, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's an interesting story in a lot of different ways. And well, the most interesting thing about it is it's completely false. Um, you know, in so my it's title, not just debunked; it's completely false. <laughs> it's completely false. I mean, I've I've given plenty of talks about early baseball, and the thing that usually happens first is that someone comes up to me afterward and says, "Wait a minute! I knew that Doubleday wasn't really true, but how could it be totally a hundred percent false?" <laughs> <laughs> and the truth is, it's totally a hundred percent false. And Abner Doubleday, wherever he is, is probably still laughing, even though the story was told in 1908. Um, and, you know, that's the other irony, as you mentioned, uh, the guy had a life of accomplishment, did a lot of great things, was a war hero, a military man, an engineer. Um, how ridiculous is it that he's gone down in history for something he had nothing to do with? You know, Doubleday was a um, sort of compulsive diarist, and he published all these memoirs. Um, we know a lot about him, and one of the things we know is that he couldn't have really been less interested in baseball. Wow. So like yeah. basically everything that we had learned when we were growing up and hearing about, well, Abner Doubleday started baseball in Cooperstown, New York. And we're like, wait a second, the, 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 the BS meter starts going off in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I remember being a kid and hearing that. I mean, it's a funny thing about the story. And I actually talk about the word BS in my book. <laughs> but, um, you know, people get things wrong. They exaggerate things. Um, but this story was never believed by the people that told it, which is part of the story. That's part of the reason the word outrageous is in my subtitle. And, you know, uh, I do a lot of uh, family research and I help people with genealogy sometimes. And one thing that weird fact about genealogy is that the stories people tell about their, um, the lies people tell about their family and their history, they're much more interesting than the truth. <laughs> Yeah, and so I tell the story in my book um, because that tells you who people are, that who they want to be, who they who they would like to be, and I tell the story at length about why baseball made up this stupid story, and you know the very simple, short answer to why is <clears throat> Albert Spalding was the most powerful owner in baseball in the 1900s. He was the founder of the Cubs, and he uh, was really irritated that <clears throat> Henry Chadwick, who was a famous sports journalist who'd been born in England, came to Brooklyn when he was 13. He was kicking this theory around that baseball developed from an English game called rounders. And if you look that up on the internet, you'll see that a lot of people still believe this or talk about it. And I happen not to believe that baseball came from rounders, but rounders is a sort of children's version of cricket. Okay. Um, it's different from baseball in some really important ways, but there's a bat in the ball and people run around. And Chadwick, when he was very, very old, started giving lectures saying, you know, uh, baseball comes from rounders. Well, that actually offended people in the 1900s. You know, we're pretty patriotic now, but in the 1900s, England was more of a threat to us. And um, we had a strong rivalry with them, a sort of inferiority complex with them. And to say that our national sport came from a game played by women and children in England was pretty much fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very nationalistic way of trying to whitewash it and by saying, no, 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 we're not going to. So... So what did they just find Abner Doubleday's writings and they just uh, and that he may have seen the sport once? Well, or... no, it's even stupider than that. <laughs> so, I mean, 
it wasn't meant totally seriously, I don't believe. But it was sort of a PR stunt. So Spalding had serious opinions about where baseball came from, but this wasn't one of them. So what he did was he said, I'm going to uh, set the record straight by appointing a Blue Ribbon Commission. And he appointed a bunch of baseball men that were friends of his. And uh, he said, uh, you know, find out the answer to the question, who invented baseball? Of course, no one invented baseball, so there's no answer. But they solicited uh, information from the public and some guy wrote a letter saying, uh, I remember when I was a kid in Cooperstown, Abner Doubleday in 1839, coming up with a sport that we'd never heard of. And the whole story is ridiculous. Um, obviously, as we mentioned, they were playing earlier than that. And Abner Doubleday might not have even been in Cooperstown at that time. I think he was supposed to be in West Point. And um, I mean, the main reason that they picked him, it could have been anybody. The point was that if it was invented by an American at a particular time and place, then that shuts down the whole idea that it came from England. That's the point of it. Okay. But uh, Doubleday was a war hero. He, he was a hero of the Battle of Gettysburg. And that added the element of it's almost unpatriotic to question it. Uh, so it's it's like the John Wayne type of <laughs> kind of looking exactly. at it. So interesting. So when you go over to Cooperstown, New York, and you're on the – the banks of the waters, and uh, you head over to the Baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame, and uh, behind the Hall of Fame, you have Double Day Field. It's named after, a, well, it's named after a, a Civil War, you know, somebody who was fought in the Army, but not the guy who invented the sport that's <laughs> that's being honored in front of the uh, facility. So, interesting. Really kind of, yeah, really and, debunks that. And, I mean, you know, it's not a secret. I'm not the first person to explain that this isn't true. But the part of the story I'm telling that's new is sort of why it was told. And that's more interesting for me. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I say that the story has sort of gotten into people's heads and it's warped their whole idea of where baseball came from. And that's really true because the next thing you hear people say is, uh, okay, um, well, if he didn't do it, who did? And that's where you get sort of Alexander Cartwright, if you've heard his name, or the Knickerbockers. They're the first club. They published the first rules. Um, well, that's not true either. I mean, the, they weren't the first club. They were important, but they weren't the first club. And, uh, you know, the way the story is told, you can look it up right now and, and get this story online. Uh, a lot of people believe it, is that the Knickerbockers got together in the 1840s and they or mid-1840s. They published the first baseball rules and they play the game for a while. And then they decide they're going to play outside opponents. So they find some mysterious team to play this game that presumably no one's ever seen before, right? The Knickerbockers lost 23 to 1. Oh. That's the game on June 19th, 1846, that often gets described as the first baseball game. So, I mean, does that even make any sense? No, but <laughs> no. But, the, but the thing is, you there's not that one person you can attribute it to. Because you would go, okay, like in basketball, you would say, well, Dr. James Naismith uh, took a took a ball and a peach basket and cut a hole at the bottom of the peach basket, which, which now I'm questioning if that's even real now. <laughs> you know, I have no idea. I hope it's true. But, yeah, maybe it's not. Um, but I know baseball. And that's, that's part of the problem is that you get these ideas in your head of the sort of a paradigm. Well, someone invented it. Well, no one invented it. And the real story, which is what my book's about, is much different from anything you've ever heard. It's, you know, it's, um, I guarantee every page you're going to say, wow, I didn't know that. Because the real story is really interesting and it hasn't been told. 
And that, and, that, and that story is in How Baseball Happened by Thomas W. Gilbert. Uh, Tom, final, uh, final thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up the, the conversation, it's been fantastic, is when you see the growth of baseball from what you mentioned in that amateur era, in that 15-year period, was there ever a time in baseball that you look, because you're clearly a historian, that there was so much growth in that time? Because you think about it, I look in today's world of analytics and BABIP and FLAP and all this other stuff, the, these these terms that kind of have been around and looking at on-base percentage, money ball and everything. But ultimately, baseball really hasn't grown that much, except for you do see a lot more strikeouts and a lot more home runs and batting averages have decreased a little bit. But... I would say if you were to really kind of break it down in eras, and people want to say, oh, the steroid era and this and that and everything, but baseball's kind of been in a strange trajectory, I would even say since Catfish Hunter, that you're going back into the days of free agency, and then since then there have been a couple of strikes, there have been a couple of lockouts and everything, and obviously with what happened here in 2020 with the the season getting postponed and uh, abridged as well was there ever a time in baseball's history that there was such rapid growth from here to there uh from the amateur era or is has there been other times where baseball's really kind of taken off in different directions as well well you know that's a pretty interesting question um i mentioned this 15 year period at the beginning that that's shocking because you know you come you have a country that not only doesn't have baseball it has no sports and then 15 years later there's this very modern sport everywhere and baseball's it's leading the country down a path that all sports have followed you know they all follow the paradigm of baseball and uh, you know the fan itself the beginning of the fandom itself is part of my story but the other thing i want to say about your question is you know a friend of mine was showing me a manuscript of a baseball book he was writing and he had a sentence, something like uh, 1870s were a big time of big change in baseball or the 1940s. And I, I told I, I crossed it out and said, every time is the time of great change in baseball. And that's the truth is that we have this idea as fans that there are a lot of traditionalists, you know, you want to get rid, you want to put the DH in, they freak out. You want to have a three batter minimum for a relief pitcher. That's sacrilege. You, uh, uh, the playoff system, the, how, how dare they change it? The truth is that if you're honest and you have a long enough point of view about the history of baseball, it's changing all the time, right? I mean, when I was a kid, the pitchers were dominant. Uh, I, you know, in the late 60s, mid and late 60s, it was a totally different game. I mean, Carly Stremski won a batting title hitting 301. And then they you know, shaved remember, the mounds down. Yeah, I'm looking. I mean, but baseball's always, there's always adjustments and counter adjustments. And that's one of the fascinating things about it, you know, Look what's happening right now. You know, remember when everyone was throwing two seamers and trying to get ground balls? Um, now oh, there's all this uppercutting and the four high four seam fastballs back. You know, even guys that throw 92 are getting people out upstairs. And even all this overshifting, which people, uh, some people don't like, you start to see the hitters adjust to it. And this is, to me, part of the fun of baseball. I, I, I like it too. And now, were they doing shifts and stuff in those days as well? Uh, well, I mean, it got not not to this level, but, um, you know, there were people like the Harry Wright that I mentioned who did some of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, analytics even goes back to the amateur era. Um, this Henry Chadwick, the journalist who was arguing that baseball came from rounders, 
uh, he invented all the basic stats we use. And if you read his writings, he says, you have to measure everything really accurately in order that the game will perfect itself and improve. You have to understand what's really happening and you have to use numbers and information. And in my afterward, I imagine what he would think of baseball now. And he would be thrilled to death at StatCast and war and all that stuff. All derived from him. That's amazing. Well, hey, Tom, this has been a real pleasure. And it's, the book's called How Baseball Happened. It's available, I'm assuming, on Amazon, wherever you get yep. your books, right? Everywhere. Excellent. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining me here. And, uh, yeah, we'll get this posted here. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of good feedback because we've got a lot of baseball fans in the audience. And really, uh, you know, for anybody who's bored with today's game, just go back in history and realize how interesting and where we came from and how baseball kind of began and that the game that they played in the 1850s is really not too much different from what they play now. It's just uh, uh, the equipment's just a tiny bit better, I would say. (laughs) Well, uh, thanks so much. And send me an email when it's posted. I will do so. Thanks so much. Well, Mr. Burns had done it. The power plant had won it. With Roger Clemens clucking all the while. Mike Sosha's tragic illness made us smile While Wade Boggs lay unconscious on the barroom tile We're talking softball From Maine to San Diego Talking softball Manningly and Conseco Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw Steve Sachs and his running with the law We're talking Homer Ozzy and the Straw